Well, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. In the early 1800s, a successful print shop owner died. He passed his business on to his son. After a few years, he began to grow concerned that the print shop's primary copy editor and bookbinder was aging and seeming to slow down in his work. So he began to search out a replacement for the older man. He found a sharp young man, highly educated, seemingly quite capable. He had all the necessary knowledge and all the necessary energy to take on the job. The skilled but tiring print shop worker was at first very concerned that he would soon be replaced, but quickly realized he had certain job security when the young apprentice refused his repeated efforts to instruct him and train him. The young man was convinced he knew all that he needed to know. A very important client came to the business owner and asked for 16 copies of a 300-plus page book to be produced. The shop owner knew that the older man would complete the work with excellence. It would be done well. It would be done right as to his specifications. But he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to do it quickly enough to satisfy the customer. But he didn't want to insult the old man. So he quietly told the new employee to do the work but to keep a low profile. Every day, the young man would come to the shop, usually late, make a cryptic comment about the work he had been commissioned to do, and eventually the older man discovered what was going on. He found the young man to be frustrated, unequipped for the work, and frequently ready to give up. He continued to do his work quietly, day in and day out, occasionally offering counsel and even providing a visual tutorial in more excellent practices of learned bookmaking. But... The young man persisted in his arrogance. The shop owner realized what was going on and began to question his decision to hire the young man. But his fears were momentarily resolved when although well after the deadline for the first copy of the 16 volumes of the book commissioned had passed, the apprentice burst into his employer's office and said, it's done, I did it. Together they were very, very excited. The printmaster looked on through the open door. It was obvious that he was not invited to this party. But he smiled gently, patiently, and he waited. The businessman took hold of the book, and as he began to examine it, his exuberance waned. In fact, his countenance dropped, and his frame fell into his chair. He removed his spectacles, looked up at the young man, and said, the page numbers are out of order. Due to a layout error, all of the odd pages were printed first, then the even. The book could not be sold. It was a massive waste of time, energy, and money. As the young man, dejected and shamed, turned book in hand to leave the room, his employer said, and the binding is upside down. The struggle to complete the project continued. The older man continued to offer instruction repeatedly, as well as hands-on, observable how-to. In a few weeks, he grew ill and was unable to arrive for work. The young man's work continued to suffer his laziness and lack of devotion to excellence. But now the shop owner was stuck with his hiring decision. There was no one else to do the work. He had to rely upon the young man. The older man returned to work briefly seemed to be recovering from his illness and then suddenly died after only a few works of hard labor. After a month or so, 
the business owner began to notice a marked difference in the young man's performance and product, so much so that he felt he needed to ask what led to the change. He actually was doing well. It wasn't with the speed that the boss had expected, but his work was well accomplished. The young man simply said in response to the question, what changed? It was the repetition of the old man's wise teaching, but that was not enough. It was his example of making every effort in his dying days that prompted me to be like him. It was his making every effort in his dying days to do well, to honor the boss, to accomplish what the master had required. See, repetition is the necessary tool of any good teacher, but it is his example that will either make or break the process of education. The very best teacher can only accomplish so much, and whatever he accomplishes will be completely undone if his life does not stand in support of what he has taught. Repeatedly through the Old Testament, the Lord says to Israel, you have forgotten. You have forgotten. In Isaiah 17.10, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, because they've forgotten the ordinances of God, they embraced the ordinances of of pagan life. In Isaiah 51, verse 12, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. The point is, why do you fear man and not fear me who has taken care of you. Jeremiah 18, 15, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. They made them stumble in their ways in the ancient roads and to walk into side roads, not the highway, making their land a horror, a thing to be hissed at forever. For even the people of God, when they forget God, and when they forget what God has accomplished, they are easily distracted. They are easily ripped away unto a false God. In Hebrews 12, verse 5, we read, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This idea of being trained by discipline is expressive of repeated 
efforts to instill discipline. There's not much hope in one effort to discipline anyone, but there is much hope to discipline the one who is gladly willing to receive discipline over time, recognizing that it is the training of discipline over time, and repeatedly so, that leads to change, that leads to a changed life. But only when the one exercising the discipline proves to be worthy of giving it. The hypocritical father, whose devotion to Jesus and to the church which is clearly feigned as expressed by a completely different life in the privacy of his own home, will find that his efforts to parent will certainly and simply result in Phariseeism. He will be the producer of Pharisees if he himself has not proven to be committed to the things that he is attempting to teach his children. This is an obvious axiomatic reality, and yet so well hidden by those who only know how to deceive. And think of it, the person who grows and increases in his ability to deceive only has less motivation to subject himself humbly to the truth and be disciplined by it and be trained by it and be changed by it. Why do we observe the Lord's table repeatedly until the Lord returns? Repetition. The Lord commands us to do it for the sake of repetition. But ultimately we do it because we forget. Do you not forget the blood and the body of Christ? Of course you do. And so do I. And so that picture that stands before us of the bread and the cup, that rightly and seriously and necessarily reflects the death of Jesus Christ, his broken body and his spilled blood, were someone to say to me, I think we take the Lord's table a little too seriously. I might redouble my efforts to say then we ought to take it more seriously if that's the impact that it's had on you. It needs to be done repeatedly because it is a serious matter that reflects the most serious matter of all history. In John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, Jesus says. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And you know this. What Jesus said, he repeated. And so you have the testimony of four different authors hitting it from all different angles. And that's the beauty of the necessary and spirit-filled repeated expression of truth from different perspectives. One of the greatest challenges in preaching the word of God is to restate the same doctrines in such a way that it's fresh. For you, you may have heard me teach the same Bible passage. You may have even heard me teach the same topic. And if I'm only saying the same things over and over, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to find yourself saying, oh, I've heard this before. Or even if... I ask you to turn to a passage in the Bible that you've recently read or maybe sometime in the history of your life you've heard someone else teach from. You might be inclined to think, um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll check out Facebook during this message because I already know this pretty well. And the reality is that the doctrines of the Bible have so much overlap within themselves, they are interdependent. 
We call this the analogy of the faith. The Bible is self-warranting. It's self-merited. It's self-proving. Everything within the scripture undergirds and proves everything within the scripture. Again, we call that the analogy of the faith. The Bible analyzes itself, and in doing so, it proves itself repeatedly and uninterruptedly and perfectly to be perfect and flawless. For the person who teaches or counsels the word of God, the person who declares and delivers the word of God, it is crucial that he is willing to do it in such a way that repetition achieves its desired accomplishment. It achieves the desired goal. At the same time, the lister can perhaps hear it in a fresh, a new way that reaches the heart. In 2 Peter 1, verse 9, you know, just from last week, Peter says, for whoever lacks these qualities, and then he makes this bold and devastating statement, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It is not unusual for the believer who has been cleansed from his former sins to forget that he has been cleansed from his former sins. And he somehow believes or maybe even conjures up, but he certainly tends to promote this idea that he cleansed himself. He ushered in the cleansing by bringing himself to the cleanser when he himself was dirty beyond recognition and beyond ability to do anything that might make him presentable before the cleansing Christ. Peter's point is clear. Whoever lacks these qualities, the things last week that we said were the qualities that lead to godliness. We're going to go through them briefly again this morning. The person who is not engaged in these qualities, if he is in Christ, if he has been cleansed of his former sins, has forgotten. What does he need? He needs repetitious sound reminders. And that's really the statement that Peter is giving to us this morning. Let's read through this text, 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This morning, we'll see Peter's steadfast commitment to remind believers of the qualities that lead to a godly life resulting in an assurance of one's election unto eternal life. There are three main verbs in our text this morning, and they're all very important. I intend, I think, and I will make. I intend, I think, and I will make. More specifically, I intend to remind you, I think it is right to remind you, 
And I will make every effort to remind you. It's clear. Peter does not want us to forget that he is reminding us that he is reminding us. And as I mentioned to you last week, and I I hope you sat on the edge of your seat listening for the solution to the frustrated spiritual life. I told you from the beginning that there is no text that is more helpful for spiritual growth than this. And if you embraced the list that Peter gives, and if you've looked at that list since last Sunday, and if you've meditated on that list, and if you've believed what Peter says a devotion to that list will lead to, then God has certainly increased your sanctification. No question. This is how it works. We must make mention, we always should make mention of the fact that when we look at what the scripture says about sanctification, that there is a broad sweeping effort in Christendom today to revert to antinomianism. Really the feudal perspective that says let go and let God. It sounds good. It might even sound noble. It sounds as if, well, I'm just choosing to trust Christ. He said it is finished. Jesus was not referring to the sanctification process when he said it is finished. If that were finished, you and I would be in heaven. We'd be completely sanctified, and clearly we're not. It's obvious about any one of us. In these three verbs, I intend, I think, and I will make, Peter points out the need for repetition. He points out the fact that you and I need to be reminded Maybe you've wondered about the whole preaching event. Maybe you've wondered about why it is that the church is so committed, the true church, so committed to expository preaching. This is why. You say, but some churches are, you know, the emergent church, they're, they got it going on. They're all about, you know, dialogue teaching, the Socratic method, the ability to nurture and cultivate a back and forth. You don't see that in biblical preaching. Nothing wrong with that environment, but the church that's the true church must be devoted to a delivery, a clear exposition of sound exegesis in God's word. And it must be done with repetition. You know this, as we go through the Bible over the years, you're going to see a lot of repetition of doctrine. Why? Because all the writers of the Bible rest in one writer. The Spirit of God has moved on the hearts of men to give us proper interpretation of God's heart on paper in his word. The result then is that they all agree. And many times they say things similar. It's not unusual for me to quote Paul when I'm trying to help you understand Peter. Vice versa. Why? Because they teach the same doctrine. They've given to us the same theology. So what's so important to Peter to state and restate that he's going to remind the reader it is the qualities that nurture godliness and ensure one of his or her eternal salvation. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'll keep reminding you. It's those qualities, and it is the assurance of eternal life. Now, let me point out that there are those, there will be those who insist on an assurance of eternal life, and they shouldn't because they don't have it, because they rest in a faulty gospel. 
And if you haven't taken the time to read through 2 Peter, it'll take one time for you to understand what I'm talking about. There are those who are deceived. And that deceit is not only bolstered, but sometimes initiated by a false teacher who looks good on the cover. He speaks in platitudes. Usually these guys do. They say a lot of things theologically, but they will almost never walk you up to those theological conclusions. They won't prove it to you. They won't walk you grammatically and historically through the Bible. They'll just say a lot of things, and much of what they say is true. And at the right moment, the right strategic moment, they'll slip something in that will so confuse you, but you'll think it must be true because most of what he says is right. But he's never proven to you to be an exegete a genuine expositor of God's word. He only insists that you believe what he says to you and insists that you acknowledge the fact that he is right because he says it. Peter begins this section with the word, therefore. This always warrants investigation. This always warrants the necessary understanding of the relationship between what he's about to say and what he has just said. So let's do that. Because perseverance in practicing these qualities leads to the unmerited prize of eternal life in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Peter said he would always remind the believer of them. I will always proclaim them to you, he said. So what does this therefore point back to? Go all the way back with me to verse 3, where we saw the power of godliness. We saw the power of godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That, my friends, is an invitation to spiritual growth. When Peter the Apostle says these words, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is an introduction into that which is going to change your life, make you less like self, and make you more like Christ, if you will, in fact, give your humble and grateful adherence to it, and only if that. But the person who fumbles and bumbles through the Christian life and gives no disciplinary attention to these essential truths, he will simply stand as a discouragement to those who look on and hope for him to actually be an example. Laziness in the things of God never helped anybody. Peter here is clear. It is the power for godliness these things have been given to you in fullness. Pay attention to them. Subject yourself to them. We saw then in verse 3 the pathway to godliness, which is the knowledge of him. It's the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His call, his bringing us to the front gates of his glory and his excellence, us being exposed to the true knowledge of him in his word, will bring about godliness. That's the pathway. Third, we saw the promise of godliness. This promise is granted just as it is spoken of in a way that reflects the character of God. It is promised. Verse 4 says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Everyone to whom these great promises have been granted, will experience the new nature. They have experienced it if they have 
been made to be in Christ. They have a new nature. They do not have two natures that fight each other. They have a new righteous nature. And that new nature is under constant attack by the residual humanity called the flesh. The need for sanctification comes from that essential Christian reality. We are born into total depravity. We are saved from that condition. And yet the residual flesh remains on and fights against the spirit while the spirit fights against the flesh. But there is a promise of godliness. And we can know that it is increasing. Why? Because we've been given a new nature and we have a desire for that godliness. The proof of godliness is in verse 4, in that having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire is a reality about us. The person who simply does a good job of putting on a show, but in the privacy of his own home and the privacy of his own mind, has not been spared this reality. And therefore, he attempts to equate his own privately depraved life with every other Christian. He somehow thinks that he can persuade others to think that we weren't born into total depravity. What has he done? He's wrapped himself up in a pretty package that shakes hands and looks people in the eye and acts as if everything's okay. He hasn't been spared that condition. But the proof of godliness, the proof of the new nature is in the reality that he has escaped this corruption not because he's put on good behavior modification. His life has changed through and through, not completely, not perfectly, not wholly, but the foundation of his heart is a set of new desires. It hungers for holiness. It does not hunger for persuading people to believe that he is holy. It does not result in defensiveness when he's challenged and when he's instructed, when he's corrected, when he's rebuked. He embraces such a thing because he wants holiness. We also saw the practice of godliness, and this is where we see these qualities that Peter over and over and over emphasizes to us. The practice of godliness, the process of godliness. For this very reason, make every effort. Be diligent. Let your life be about these qualities. Friends, let me plead with you to do a self-examination, and in that self-examination, ask others to be involved in that examination. Are you devoted to these qualities? I mean, really, every single one of them? I ask that as your pastor. I ask that as a shepherd who longs for sheep to enjoy the full, enjoyable meal that God offers to us in the sanctifying process. But if you're struggling if you're losing the battle against sin, know that I love you and I long for you to overcome and to win that battle. And when I repeatedly remind you of these truths, it's because I long for you to experience the joy that comes with being a Christian. And if you're experiencing no degree of success in the area of victory over sin, you are not in Christ. Let me say it again. If you are experiencing no victory, you're not in Christ. You say, well, what's the smallest amount of victory that I need to be experiencing to know that I'm in Christ? <laughs> you care. It matters to you. You don't become glassy-eyed when I open the Bible and start teaching you from it 15 minutes in, staring at the floor. That caused a few of you to look up. 
It's okay if you stare at the floor every now and then. Really, it is. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, the faith that's been granted to you. See, if you can't get past that, if you think that your faith is credited to you, you will never experience virtue. No. You'll pretend to have virtue, but if you believe that you somehow earned your faith, that you chose it, that you somehow lifted yourself up out of death unto life, which is taught prevalently in so many local churches these days. You will never experience virtue, but you'll do a great job pretending so that you'll fit in with those who actually do have virtue. And the more you hear truth, the more you'll become embittered by it until one day, after repetition, after repetition, after repetition, which is what the faithful shepherd does, you'll break by God's grace. That's the hope. But the more you fight the reality that faith is a gift, as Scripture proclaims to us, the less likely you will be to ever be able to supplement your faith with virtue. Supplement your virtue with knowledge, knowledge of Jesus Christ. Supplement your knowledge with self-control. Be willing to restrain yourself. Supplement your self-control with steadfastness. Be willing to persevere. Discipline yourself. Stop being lazy. Be willing to supplement your steadfastness with godliness. Be reverent toward God. Obey him. Understand his commands. Confess your disobedience to his commands. Supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. Be willing to express your affection, your endearment toward other brothers. A willingness to show them practically, tangibly, that you genuinely have an actual affection for them. Supplement your brotherly affection with love. Be willing to show a desire for the better good of others. Don't get all wrapped up in your lonely little life with the internet such that you no longer think about how to serve others as an expression of love. Maybe it's time to take a seven-day hiatus from all things technological for some folks and rather pour that time lovingly into others who need your love. Next, we saw the product of godliness. The product of godliness is spiritual effectiveness. This can be measured. Now, you be honest. You be honest. To what degree are you legitimately having godly influence on other people? Be honest. You say, well, I can't measure that accurately. It's not what I'm asking. Are you legitimately having a spiritually helpful impact on other people? You say, well, it's paltry. That's a good start. Be encouraged. If you can confidently say, you know, God used me to encourage this believer. God used me to proclaim the gospel to an unbeliever. That's a good start. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged. You should be. That's an indication that you care. The product of godliness, according to Peter here, he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So don't stop there. Don't think that's good enough for your whole life. Be committed to the spiritual growth of other people such that you will be reproduced 
May it be that your influence on others would result in their influence on others. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. You see that? The person who has zero influence on anyone's life in a spiritually helpful way is blind by it. He's blind by it. He doesn't even know. He refuses to seek the counsel and assessment of others who actually do know. Don't be that person. He's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. This can happen to a believer. He's usually a new believer. If he's not a new believer, he's poorly taught or maybe not taught at all. But he's shown little or no interest in the body of Christ. And the result is that he's become blinded by it. And the source of it is a bad memory. Maybe he doesn't take the Lord's table seriously. It's something as simple as that. If you're wondering whether or not you've deceived yourself, go to other people and ask them to be honest with you. Am I making a mark? Am I having an impact at all? And don't do it self-piteously, fishing for a compliment that isn't true. Don't look for flattery. Look for honesty. Next, we saw the prize of godliness. Peter says in verse 11, For in this way, in what way? Everything we've just looked at. These qualities. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, you've probably told someone before, you know, you can know that you can go to heaven. There's a way to know. John's pretty clear about it, isn't he, in John 20? These things have been written that you may know that you have life. Peter is saying the same truth. He's undergirding it with different content. You can know. For in this way, if you find yourself increasingly committed to these qualities, that's how you know you have eternal life. Because you're committed to the things that God planted in your heart. But if you're leaning on anything else, you're blinded. You're blinded. Well, that moves us to our text this morning. And we'll move quickly through this because we'll have to. Point number nine. Point number nine. The prompting of godliness. The prompting of godliness. Peter says in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. This was Peter's duty and his delight. You see that? Christian duty is delight for the Christian. The person who recognizes that God has placed on us responsibilities finds delight in fulfilling the duty. It was a delight for Peter to do that. He says, although you already know them, I will still proclaim them to you. And although you are established in the truth, I believe you need to hear these particular truths repeatedly. I feel that. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. 
Peter's stated plan is to remind the elect of the qualities that lead to godliness because he wanted them to be godly and to experience the joy of godliness. But he mentions that they are established in the truth. This is an honest and heartfelt pastoral recognition that his teaching has been well received. I feel this. I have the privilege to pastor a church of people who love the word of God. Honestly, I don't know a lot of men who can say that with such exuberance and joy. I know that you expect me to bring truth to you in such a way that it's going to challenge you and strengthen you and prepare you for effective evangelism. And Peter knew this to be true of the people to whom he wrote. As I said, this is an honest and heartfelt expression of the fact that although I need to remind you of these things, you are established in the truth and you should be commended for it. As I look around the room, I could tell story after story of repeated experiences with so many of you where we have grappled together over the word of God. And we've asked the question, how would the Lord be most glorified in how we deal with this particular situation in light of this truth? How can you and I honor our father whose son gave his life for us and gave us his word? Regarding this word established here, William Barclay says that it means to make as solid as granite. Interesting, huh? Barclay says, suffering of body and sorrow of heart do one of two things to a man. They either make him collapse or they leave him with a solidity of character which he could never have gained anywhere else. If he meets them with continuing trust in Christ, he emerges like toughened steel that has been tempered in the fire, end quote. This is what Peter wanted for them. This is what Peter believed to be increasingly true of them. They were established in truth. You see, a similar reality from the heart of Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is an expression of Paul's heart to the Thessalonians. They are established in truth. They chose to receive it as God's word and not as the word of men. 2 Peter 1.9, Peter says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten. So Peter is committed to reminding them of this truth. He's reminding them of these qualities. So they won't forget. Peter deals with a prompting of godliness, saying, I will remind you. I will be a constant reminder to you of these qualities. Any legitimate pastor is going to remind the flock of these qualities, and he's going to set those qualities up as a standard by which the individuals within the flock can determine whether or not they have eternal life. I think it's right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. If there's any functionability in 
the tent that I've been given, I think it right. Truth is, he knows it to be right. But he's expressing in this way to say that it's a conviction of mine. I think this is the way to go. The prompting of godliness. Peter said to Jesus in Matthew 17, 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This word tent is the same word in verse 14 that's translated in the ESV as body. It's tabernacle. It's a temporary housing. It's what your body is. It's temporary. You know that. It's fading. It's crumbling. It's falling apart. The moment you're born, the moment you're conceived, you're headed toward death. And you're reminded of that on a daily basis with the pains and the aches and the difficulties that come with being a steward of a human body. But as long as I'm in this tent, as long as I'm here, as long as I have the ability, as long as I can still talk, this verb, stir up, the idea of stirring you up is to awaken you from sleep. Now, if my teaching doesn't awaken you from spiritual sleep, one of us is not in the zone that day. But this is what sound pastoral love will do. It will stir you up. Now, just for a heart check here for a moment, and only you can know the truth about this, what goes on in your mind when we open our Bibles together? Is it for you an exercise in determining whether or not what I say fits your theology? See what I mean by that? You come with red pen in hand, knowing everything that needs to be known, much like the young apprentice that I spoke of in the print shop. Nothing to learn, but I'm going to see where Todd's off and where he's on today. Believe it or not, there are people who think that way. Now, the truth is, you need to be assessing my teaching for sound theology, but your heart attitude should be one of humility and teachability, longing to be changed in the teaching moment, during the preaching event, believing that by way of reminder of sound truth, not swallowing it blindly, but knowing that in due time, you're going to know whether a man is a shepherd or not. You're going to know whether or not he's faithful to teach truth such that at the point where your theology and his theology run into each other and don't fully agree, you're going to be challenged by that. You're going to choose to rethink your position. That should be your response. I think it's right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. The moment that you think, you know, Everything Todd says, that's just how it is. You've missed the point. That's not humility sitting under sound teaching. That's saying, I'm still blind, just tell me what to think and believe. That's why in our family groups we make a diligent effort to teach you to be diligent in hermeneutics, to really understand the process by which a person arrives at the Holy Spirit's interpretation. You can do that. 
That's why for those of you who have been faithful to complete that study guide week in and week out, you've seen yourself increase in being an actual student of the Bible. It's not unusual for someone to become aware of the fact that they haven't really been a Bible student at all once we start implementing these basic Bible study principles that are really simply explained. It's not hard to understand them, but it does require diligence. Point number 10, can you believe it that quickly? Point number 10, the pouring out and in of godliness. In verse 14, Peter says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter poured out godliness and into by his Example, verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Putting off of my body will be soon. I know it's coming. It's imminent. The idea that it will be soon is in Peter's mind a constant reality. Constantly wondering, when will the day be that the Lord will take me home? How much more can I accomplish between now and that moment? How much time do I have? I don't know. But during that time, I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to repeatedly remind the people who will listen of truth, trusting that it's going to strengthen the believer and it's ultimately going to shatter the unbeliever so that he will shatter his false beliefs and ultimately trust Christ with sound theology, not man-made theology, but sound truth about the character of God and what he has accomplished. Peter knew this based on Jesus' words back to him. John 21, 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This idea of stretching out the hands is thought by many to be reflective of what one does when he is placed on a cross. And so Peter would have had some intimated idea that he would die by way of crucifixion. Paul also, you know from 2 Timothy, says that he's being poured out as a drink offering. He's near the end. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred things which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And as he communicates these truths in the same way that Peter communicates the same truth, he would say, follow my example. You know, from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. In Hebrews 13, you see that you are called to imitate those who teach the word as they imitate the Lord. The pouring out and in of godliness. In 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This would have been the mindset of Peter. This would have been the mindset of Paul. But it was also their mindset to produce that mindset in others. It's my mindset to produce that mindset in you. That we would be thinking about the temporal reality of this life. You don't know how much time, nor do I know how much time we have, but we know it's short. We know it's brief. Psalm 103 tells us that life is like grass. Anybody ever taken care of a lawn? How long does a blade of grass last? Not long, and that's the point. It's expressive of the brevity of this lifetime. Peter says in our text in verse 15, And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. See, Peter wasn't just about teaching these truths. He was about proving that his life was an expression of these truths. I will make every effort. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because that's what he said to the elect. That's exactly what he wrote to them. Back in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort. You see, Peter is not here just dealing. This is his third time to say, I'm reminding you. He's not at this point saying, I'm going to remind you by, by way of verbiage, by way of wording, by way of teaching. I want you to be reminded as I make every effort. It's an allusion back to verses 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort, he says, to supplement your faith. And here he is saying, I'm making every effort to supplement my faith. I'm not just telling you to do things that I'm not willing to do myself. In fact, the way to think about it is quite the opposite of that. I am telling you these things, not just because I do them myself, but because I enjoy them. Because I enjoy the reality of engaging in that which leads to godliness. Engaging in that which leads to godliness, which leads to eternal security. Peter's choice to make every effort involved more than repeated verbal reminders. It was his life devoted to truth that proved that truth to be worthy of repeating. You see that? Because of the testimony of his life, people would look on and say, there's a guy who enjoys truth. There's a godly man. How would they know that? Because he's devoted to these qualities. He's devoted to the faith that's been granted to him. He's devoted to adding virtue to that. He's devoted to adding knowledge to that. He's devoted to brotherly affection. He's devoted to love. The pouring out and in of godliness. The latter part of verse 15 says, So that after my departure... This is the word exodus. You know that word. So that after my exodus, you may be able at any time to recall these things. You know, Peter's message was delivered as a desperate man, not knowing the degree to which he would perhaps be able to communicate these truths again. Peter is saying, I want my ministerial life in your life 
to be marked out by repetition and by expression in my life such that when I'm gone and I can no longer remind you, you'll still recall these things because of how I lived. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind... Now listen, listen closely to the grammar here. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. See what he's saying? The people in Macedonia and Achaia are reporting that the impact that we had on you, Paul's not being boastful. He's simply pointing out the reality that we lived a life that was worthy of emulation and you lived a life that was worthy of emulation as you emulated us. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Peter and Paul have these parallel ministry lives where they can both commend the believers to whom they write, whom they love, and whom they've poured their lives, and able to say, your lives are commendable. We did our best to provide for you a substantial and legitimate example, and you followed it, and people throughout the world know it. Now think of it. Why would our church not be capable of that? Why would we as a small church of about 200 people not be able to have such an impact on the world? Can we not be set apart? Can we not be set apart in such a way that people would say about us that we received the word of God as the word of God, not as the word of men? We received it in tribulation. We chose to exercise brotherly affection with one another. In fact, we would even become known by our love for one another. I suggest that's true already. But as Paul said to the Thessalonians, I think you and I are to excel still more. To ask the question, is there any discord among us? Is there any fragment of disunity? Why would you hang on to that? It's not unusual in a discussion where someone has expressed a negative thought about someone else, that when that person is challenged, well, well, let's pursue unity. Let's go talk. No, 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 it's no big deal. Well, it sure sounded like you thought it was a big deal. Oh, but it's really not. Well, okay, why'd you bring it up? Oh, I don't know. I was just venting. Oh, well, the Bible calls venting sin. Maybe we should talk about that. Is there anything in your life that would prevent those who know you from saying your life is worthy of emulation? Can others say about you that you would say after your departure they may be able to recall these things even when you're gone? I hope so. Do you desire that? Be encouraged if you do. Be richly encouraged by that if you do desire that. What is the outcome what is the outcome of being able to recall these things? For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's what Peter says the outcome is of those being able to recall what he taught, what he reminded them of after he died. Richard Sibbs writes, Let the assurance of an ultimate triumph invigorate our resolution to fight the good fight and lay hold on eternal life. For though the warfare be arduous, if we strive, Christ will help us. If we faint, he will cherish, animate, and support us. If we follow the directions of our leader, we shall assuredly overcome, and overcoming, the crown of unfading glory awaits our reception. So we've seen here an exercise in reminding, receiving, and remembering. Peter is committed to reminding believers of truth. He declares that they are established in it, declaring that they have received the truth. And because of those two realities in combination with each other, they will be able to remember that truth. In John 18, we see Peter the disciple adamantly declaring, I don't know that man. If you're like me, your heart is broken when you read this about our brother Peter. But we should be strengthened when we read his words at the close of our letter where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. See, it should be no surprise when young adults reject the Bible and leave the church if their pastor who forced it on them for years proved to be unaffected by it. It should not surprise us that young people are leaving the church, if you can even call it that, in droves. If those who taught them the word and perhaps even manipulated them and perhaps even became angry with them when they didn't comply with their interpretation of the word, it should not surprise us that they would leave the church, if you can even call it that, if that man's life is not something that would cause them to remember these truths after he's gone. But friends, this is more usual than it's not. It's more common than it's not for a man to stand in the pulpit week after week after week, declaring truth and himself being completely uncommitted to it, but very committed to pretending that he is. Not so with Peter, huh? Though he denied Christ, Christ changed him. Christ strengthened him. Christ sanctified him with these qualities such that history holds at the end of his life, which he spoke to us about, while Peter's wife was being crucified, he stood near her and said, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Then he, being required to be placed on a cross as well, insisted that he be crucified upside down because he didn't believe that he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. This from the man who denied Christ. You've denied Christ, and so have I. We all have baggage beyond measure in our past. But today is 
the day of being committed to these qualities that lead to godliness, that leads to an assurance of one's eternal life. I want to finish with these three comments. Number one, receive the repeated efforts of a faithful shepherd to remind you of truth. Receive the repeated efforts of a faithful shepherd to remind you of truth. Number two, remember and obey that truth. Remember and obey that truth. And third, remind others who will receive and remember the truth. Remind others who will receive and remember this truth. Be devoted to people who will allow you to be devoted to them. I'm not telling you to give up on the person who's distant, disconnected, and disinterested in relationships. I'm not saying give up, but pour yourself into people who will receive truth, who want to remember truth after you're gone, people who are willing to become an example to others that they too would be considered worthy of emulation once they're gone. Well, let's pray. Father, there is no ultimate plumbing of the depth of the riches of your word, but we try. We pray that you would help us to see it as it is and that it would affect us for what it should, that our lives would be worthy of emulation, that, that we too, as the humble, faithful apostle Peter who made every effort to live in light of the qualities that lead to a godly life, to implement them, to supplement the faith that you gave to him, that he would be a godly man and that he would be certain of eternal life. Father, I plead with you to make every one of us at the Anchor Bible Church such reflections not only of the Apostle Peter but of the person of Christ whose devotion to these qualities is perfect. It's the perfect example. We pray that his brotherly affection and his love, his love for you, his love for us, would be the basis of our love for others. And as a result, you would use us, that we too would have an impact, not only on our local church, but on our community and on the uttermost part of the world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.